This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, stackers. Happy Sunday. You surprised to hear from me? I'm kind of surprised to be here, but we've got something exciting for you today, a special episode of the Stacking Benjamin Show. And before I get to what that is all about, just have to say a big thank you to everybody who listened to the show because we won the Plutus Award for Best Personal Finance Podcast. And I'm very excited about that. Uh, Big thanks to our team who makes that happen, obviously from OG and I. We got to thank, unfortunately, got to thank my mom's neighbor, Doug. Got to thank Kathleen uh, Selman's our partner in this whole crazy operation, Shannon and Richie, who work their butts off to create episodes on Richie's side and to promote them on Shannon's side. And then also a big thanks to everybody who listens and partners of ours like Steve Stewart and our contributors like uh, Catherine Minshew and Paula Pant and Len Penzo, Greg McFarlane. People that appear on the show are amazing. And so that's exciting. But on to today's episode, let me tell you what we're doing. A lot of you have asked me about other podcasts in the financial area, and there's one that is near and dear to me, and that's called the Money Tree Investing Podcast. And this stars yours truly, along with three other contributors, Miranda Marquette from Planting Money Seeds and Adulting.tv, Linda P. Jones, who you've heard also on here quite a bit on Stacking Benjamins. We have our roundtable episodes. She, of course, has a podcast called Be Wealthy and Smart. And my friend, certified financial planner, Doug Goldstein, who has the Goldstein on Gelt show and wrote uh, Rich is a King and has the Rich is a King podcast. Anyway, the four of us contribute on this. It's a very simple format. The first half is an interview 
interview with someone. And then the second half, the four of us contributors, we get together and we talk about that topic. So a very, very neat show. And uh, Doug interviewed Susie Orman recently, uh, the Susie Orman. And I thought that that might be a good introduction. So without further ado, here's an introduction to my other podcast, the Money Tree Investing Podcast. If you like it, go over there and subscribe. And it's a lot of fun. All right, we'll see you back here tomorrow with more Stacking Benjamins. But for now, the Money Tree Investing Podcast. Welcome to the Money Tree Investing Podcast. Stock market, wealth, personal finance, value stocks. Invest in your life. Hey, and welcome back to another week, everyone. I'm Joe Salcihi from Stacking Benjamins. Doug Goldstein is driving the bus on today's show, and he's got an exciting interview for you that you're just going to absolutely love. But first... Have you ever wondered if there were a way to capitalize on all that online chatter of the millions of investors on social media? Well, your wait's over because the same artificial intelligence techniques that's used by some of the world's most sophisticated hedge funds, those are now at your fingertips and you can make their edge your edge. The Buzz Index, licensed to an exchange-traded fund, trades under the ticker symbol BUZ and gives investors a portfolio securities which show the highest degree of positive investor sentiment online. They don't survey They don't guess. Here's how it works. First, the buzz targets the most mentioned large cap U.S. stocks across the social media landscape. The more active the conversation, the greater the reliability of the buzz. Each of the most mentioned stocks is then given an insight score based on buzz's proprietary analytics. And the 75 stocks that have the most bullish score, those get included in the index. Invest in the wisdom of crowds. Head to MoneyTreePodcast.com forward slash B-U-Z-Z for a link to buzz index and more information. That's moneytreepodcast.com forward slash B-U-Z-Z. And now, Doug Goldstein. I'm very excited to be talking on the Money Tree Investment Podcast to Susie Orman. Susie Orman is probably America's most recognized expert on personal finance, best-selling author. You've seen her all over the place. Now, Susie, one of the things I know that you have focused on in your career is the issue of women and investing. And I have to share with you that Well, I sort of have done that too, because when I started as a financial advisor, I was partners with my mother, who was a financial advisor as well. And in fact, she learned it from her grandmother, who was one of the first, from her mother, I'm sorry, my grandmother, one of the first women to be licensed as a stockbroker in America. So tell me, what is it that today makes men and women different in terms of how they invest? Yeah, it's not just how they invest, it's how they handle money in any way, shape, or form. And what the purpose of money is to a woman versus what the purpose of money is to a man. The big difference between the two is that it's a woman's nature to nurture. She has the ability to give birth and she has the ability to give, you know, to feed that which she is given to in most cases. So a woman will take care of everybody, her spouse, her parents, her children, her employers, her employees, her brothers, her sisters, her aunts, her pets, and her plants before she will take care of herself. In a woman's mind, the main reason to make money is to take care of her family. The reason that most women are in charge of the household expenses and men usually are in charge of investing is because the house holds everything that a woman loves, especially single mothers. The only thing that matters to them is their kids, P. 
period. And that's, you know, even more so because they feel like because they're not married or they don't have a male or a partner in the situation that they're depriving their children of things that they really need, like, uh, you know, other father figure. <laughs> and so women are very, very different. And the best way that I could summarize it for you is that men will not even ask for directions. <laughs> that is true all over the world. So I personally call men financial fakers. <laughs> they think they know what they're doing. They act like they know what they're doing when it comes to money. But they, where did they get their information from? You know, John, who got it from Joe, who got it from Jim, who doesn't know anything, which is why we were able to witness the Bernie Madoff syndrome. Nobody knew what Bernie was doing. If you had any idea what to do with money, you never would have given him a penny because nothing made sense. And yet major stars, major Jewish organizations, majors got taken from him because one told another, told mm -hmm. another. Women, on the other hand, they'll always ask for directions. They'll always say, I don't understand. Can you tell me it again? So women are very, very different in what the goal of money is for them versus a man, what the goal of money is for him. So what do you think the goal is for men, then? Men, the goal, I have to tell you, really is for them to have money, for them <laughs> to be secure, for them to be able to you know, have their boy toys for, you know, it's a very different thing. Men have no problem asking for a raise, not wanting to go back to work for less than, you know, during the 2008 debacle here in the United States and really worldwide because of it, you found men that were making two, $300,000 a year and they refused to go back once they lost their job to work for 80000 a year. They would not do it. They would rather just sit at home and starve. Women, on the other hand, if they were making one or $200,000 a year and they lost their jobs, they went and they became a waitress, a bartender. They did anything and everything to be able to support their family. So men, you know, have a very, very different relationship with their money. And you know, again, like I said, in terms of investing, I personally think many men are horrific investors because they like to be more speculative. They like to brag about it, in my opinion, <laughs> but they really don't understand it as well as they should. Women, oh, they will take money off the table. They'd mm -hmm. rather own their home outright. Men, do not want to own their home outright because they would rather take that money and invest it than see it rot in a home. So, it's, again, those are just a few of the examples. Well, also, I think we've seen academic studies have shown that women are better at investing than men. They seem to score slightly higher just in terms of their overall returns. Would you attribute it to the same personality traits that you're describing now? I would because women make an investment They've already decided why they want to invest. And if women are afraid on any level, you know, I have a saying that fear, shame, and anger are the three internal obstacles to wealth. So when women are afraid to do something, they don't do it. And they're not ashamed to be afraid. You know, they're not ashamed to cry. They're not ashamed of those emotions. Men, on the other hand, can be really afraid to do something, but yet they're going to do it anyway. Mm -hmm. So when you're afraid and you make an investment, when it goes from 
30 all the way down to 10. Now your fear kicks in and that's when you, you know, sell. Women, on the other hand, who weren't afraid, it goes from 30 to 10. They still like the investment. They still understand it and they hold on to it. And before you know it, it goes from 10 all the way up to 100. Mm -hmm. So I did a study once with my own clients that I bought everybody, obviously, the same stock at the same price. And, you know, there were some that sold when it went down and lost money, and there were some that kept it and made money. And those that sold mainly were men. And when I asked them when they purchased the investment to begin with, were they afraid to do it, but they were just afraid to tell me they didn't want to do it, and they all said yes. Really? The women, on the other hand, when I said, were you afraid when you made this investment and they made money, right? Said, no, I really loved the idea, Susie, and I had faith in it. See the difference there? Sure. I think that people have many different ways of looking at money. We're talking to Susie Orman, who has taught millions of people how to look at money. She's a best-selling author, financial advisor. In fact, formerly a face-to-face financial advisor before she got into the world of teaching many, many more people than she could teach just one at a time. Susie, one of the things I know that you talk about is this concept of people first. In my day job as a financial advisor, I'll often talk to clients who come in, and it's funny, this man-woman distinction you're describing – I don't necessarily have specific academic evidence, but I just see it when I talk to people, is the men sit down and they'll say, well, Doug, how much money are you going to make me? And I always try to you know, turn the conversation to talk about things like, what do they want to do? What, what are their goals? And where do they want to be? And usually these conversations go better when it's only a woman in the room because she's happy to talk about what her goals are. And she may not want to sit and talk to me about how much money can I make? Because who the heck knows? When you talk about this concept of people first, is, is that what you mean? No. When, when I say people first, then money, then things, which was my slogan that I signed off for 14 years on the Susie Orman show when I had <laughs> it on CNBC, I was mainly talking to the women. Women, you need to put yourself first. You need to take care of your needs first. And if you take care of yourself first, then the most important thing is to do that you need money before you can buy things. Because I found over all the 35 years that I've been doing this is that people had more things in their closets than money in their bank account. Another fascinating thing, we would total up everything in somebody's house and what it cost just in their closets. And it was always more than they had in savings. Unbelievable. Which is like, what are you talking about, people? Are you just totally (laughs) screwed up or what? So that's where that saying came from. But what's interesting is that women love to be secure. And they want to know that they have their documents in place today to protect their tomorrows. Good luck getting a man to want to go and do a trust, do a will, say where everything's to go upon their death. So women have a far more slower approach to security because, Doug, the truth of the matter is what is the goal of money? The goal of money is to make you be secure. And Do you feel that's the woman's goal or you feel that's everyone's goal? That's everybody's goal. And if it's not, it should be. Mm -hmm. But it's more of the woman's goal than a man's goal. And a man's goal is to make money, make money 
talk about the money they made, to you know, play <laughs> in the thing. And the truth is, the first question shouldn't be when somebody sees a financial advisor is how much money you're going to make me. It should be, what does it cost for me to give you money? The truth is, Doug, I don't even have money. I have $30,000 of credit card debt. I owe this much on my home. I have this. It's like I don't have any documents in place. And, you know, they don't care about personally what they're doing, personal finance. They only care about investing in the stock market. And if you talk to a lot of these people, the truth of the matter is they have more debt than money to invest well, don't you think this comes from the fact that they, I mean, one of the terms you've, you've certainly used, many people do, is they have the poverty mind. And instead of finding a way to get themselves out of it, they're just involved in this whole self-sabotaging neuroses of money instead of saying, what are the simple steps I can do? It's actually, for those of us who've been doing this a long time, we know it's actually not impossible to be personally financially successful, but yet people simply assume they can't or they sabotage themselves. How can, how can normal people who are afraid, in fact, you mentioned the men, how can they really get themselves out of that, out of that pit and to be, in order to become much more successful? Yeah. You know, um, the only way to erase fear is to face your fear. And you have to face the truth of your life. You have to really stand in your truth. First of all, do you even have a good relationship to begin with? Because what's interesting is if you feel less than, you spend more than. And a lot of people, you know, for whatever reason, have low self-worth, and low self-worth will always equal low net worth. Even if you make money, it will leave you. You'll lose it or you'll spend it. So it starts with going within to see why are you doing without. Why do you buy things that you want but you don't need? And the great way for all of your listeners right now is to know about their money is to go into your closets, everybody, especially the women listening, and look at all the items in your closets that still have price tags on them that you had to purchase and that, you know, because you were afraid if you didn't purchase it at that moment, it wouldn't be there the next time you came back. You have shoes that you've never worn. You have makeup that you've never opened. It's why is that? Why do you buy things that you never use? Yeah, it sounds to me like the, the problem that people really need to start with is, is something they have to work on with their, with their psychiatrist and not necessarily going to their financial planner because if people are buying in order to help increase their, their self-worth, and of course that doesn't help them do it at all, it does the opposite, how do they get through this? What's the first step someone has to take to, to realize the problem so that he or she can overcome it? Yeah, you first have to realize that you're the cause of why this is happening. And not the then, government? Uh, not, actually, it's not the government, although the government, especially here in the United States, are you kidding me? It's <laughs> if you don't have any money right now, good luck, people. Good uh -huh. luck. Because I don't even want to talk about what's happening here in the United States. <laughs> unless you want to throw up, to put it mildly. We'll skip the politics for a few the, minutes. You uh... know, it just does. It's the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen, ever. And every single politician on both sides of the table should be so seriously ashamed of themselves that it has gotten to the point that it's all self-serving and it has nothing to do with the people. 
Nothing. But the point is, it's not the government, it's that each person has to watch out they for have to, him or herself. Yeah, they, you have to have this desire to save yourself. And here's what's so sad. Normally, that doesn't happen until you have hit rock bottom, until all of your credit cards are maxed out, all of your loans, if you're able to, from a retirement account have been taken. You have no place else to go to live a lie. And a lie is when you're leasing a car, your home is mortgaged to the hilt, the clothes that you wear are financed by the debt on your credit cards. If that's how you look like, a million dollars, but yet you owe it to everybody, you are nothing more than a financial liar. And if you don't stop lying to yourself right now, Eventually, you will hit rock bottom, and then you will have no choice other than to turn around. So one little thing that people might want to try, especially if they're in debt or they don't have as much money as they wish they had, because you have to have money to invest people. And if you have debt, you don't have money. Now, there's debt. So what's the one step? (laughs) The one step is, From this day for the next six months, just vow that you will buy only needs versus wants. A need is food at a grocery store. A want is food at a restaurant. You know when you say, I want this, and you know when I say, I need this. If it's a want, walk away. If it's a need, then obviously you have to buy it. So just try to get as much pleasure out of saving as you do spending. Just try that. Just try it on for size. (laughs) All right. That sounds like a great inspiration, great place for us to wrap up. Susie, in the last few seconds, just tell us how is the best way for people to follow you and keep up with the newest things that you're doing these days? Yeah. You know, you can always follow me on SusieOrman.com. That's S-U-Z-E-O-R-M-A-N.com. And, you know, for many people, I've taken like a year or two off now to try to create new instruments, Doug, with artificial intelligence, truthfully, that help people get in touch with who they are, financially speaking, and to figure everything that you were asking me, I'm trying to figure out how do we do a self-examination of a person to show where their financial flaws are inwardly speaking, and then what can they do to conquer them so that they can be the people they deserve to be with money. Okay, we will put a link to that at the show notes of today's show at moneytreepodcast.com. Susie Orman, thank you so much for taking the time today. Anytime, Doug. Thanks for an awesome interview, Doug. And by the way, I was talking recently with Jamie Wise at the Buzz Index. By the way, for more on the Buzz Index, head to moneytreepodcast.com forward slash B-U-Z-Z. He was telling me the amount of online chatter lately has been much, much, much greater than it was even three months ago. What do you think that's about, Doug? I think that with the move in the market, Joe, especially related to the, let's say, the Trump spike in the way the market's going, people have all sorts of theories. And there are many people who would absolutely refuse to attribute this move to the new president. And some people who are saying, even though he's not so good at playing politics 
in Washington, the principles that he's espousing, lower regulation, lower taxes, all those sort of things will help the economy. And I think that the two sides of this are going crazy. And people in social media, let alone in real media, are, are loving to talk about this. You know, and there's been a lot of talk, a lot of buzz, Jamie also shared with me, about biotech lately. And Linda, when you're looking at stocks, is biotech an area that you look at a lot? Biotech is a tough area to look at to invest in, I think, because a lot of those companies are money losers. They're not going to make money for a long time. You're sort of betting on the future. Right. And it's it's very speculative. So it's not really my cup of tea, but that's not to say that there aren't going to be some huge movers out there, or some huge phenomenal new companies created, but it's just very hard to really separate who are the ones that are going to succeed from the ones that aren't. That's funny. He said very much the same thing when he and I spoke that that when it comes to biotech, especially the last like year and a half, it's been kind of a frustrating place to invest money. So he was even surprised by all the buzz lately in biotech. So it'll be interesting to see how, how that goes. Back in in uh, July, by the way, the S&P 500 was up 3.1%, the S&P 500 up one9 Obviously, the buzz index doesn't compete directly with the S&P 500, but, uh, but another good, interesting month. And with things like uh, biotech and lots of speculation on oil. Uh, interesting month. Moneytreepodcast.com forward slash B-U-Z-Z for people who want more information. I need to do my disclaimer too. I invest in the Buzz Index. Doesn't mean it's right for you. You should do your own homework. All right, uh, Doug, nice interview, man. Hey, thanks very much. I'm really happy you guys are here. Today on the panel, we have Linda P. Jones. Linda, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm over in Huntington Beach today, still avoiding the desert heat. So... <laughs> Stay cool. You are, of course, the queen of cool and Joe Saul Sihai, the the king of cool. How you doing there, buddy? Well, I'm cool because I'm hanging out in mom's basement like always. So I avoid <laughs> the heat that way. And she pays the air conditioning bill. I love that. Listen, you know, today we're missing Miranda Marquardt from the panel. And one of the things about when Miranda's on the show and I'm on the show and we're talking, sometimes I feel that she and I don't see things eye to eye. Maybe you guys have noticed that a little Do bit. You get that you know, you get that feeling, and she kind of makes me feel bad, but I thought this interview, in fact, with Susie Horman <laughs> made me feel a little bad about being a man. You know, she said that we're different from women, we can't invest well, we don't set goals well, and, of course, we're, we're overconfident. <laughs> Linda, representing women, all women on the planet, could you comment about if this, <laughs> could you comment about whether you feel this is the way it is? Well, I don't think that's the way it is. And I think obviously men are great investors or 99% of men in the investing in the professional investing space wouldn't be there. So I think if it were just based on gender, that little 1% of women that are money managers would, if that were just based on gender, they'd be way outperforming. And obviously, it's not just based on gender. So I think that it comes down to good investing skills. And you can be male, female, you know, you can be a child and have good investing skills. It doesn't matter. So, but I do think to some degree, I'm, I mean, don't get me wrong. I thought there was a ton of man bashing going on there, but, but, but I do think that there are differences between men and women and, and not, not all men and women, Linda. So I agree with you there, but don't you think that, that when you, you can kind of build some stereotypes of most men and most women? Well, we can actually go away from stereotypes and we can use facts, which is even better. No, because no, they no. Actually... Stereotypes are much better. <laughs> <laughs> because they've actually done studies. And I think that's where Susie was getting her information was that the study that I saw and that I believe she saw was saying that women 
uh, money managers have outperformed men. And it was a specific study over a specific period of time. I don't know if they've continued that study and if that's still true, but I did see that years ago. And what it was was that women tended to stay with stocks longer. So it showed that they were a longer buyer and holder, if you will. And we we know that buy and hold generally will win the game. So by them just sticking with the stock longer, it ended up that they had a better track record. Again, I don't know if that has still, you know, if, if they're still monitoring that and still tracking that or not. And that was a study of professional money management, money managers who are women as opposed to men. I don't know if it was professional money managers. I'm not okay, sure. Because I'm just thinking, I know the there are other studies that have looked at individual investment accounts and just compared how the men and women did. And the women actually did outperform. I don't know if it's all for the same reasons that Susie was saying, but personally, my experience is, and I don't want to be a man basher too, and and not to, to make vast generalizations, but it seems to me that all too often men, and I deal with this, you know, in my day job, the, the men come in and they have all these ideas about what to do that really are not based on anything except the fact that they say it with a great deal of confidence. Joe, you're a pretty confident guy. What do you think? Uh, I think... I think that when it comes to confidence, confidence has a lot to do with investing. I think that when you decide uh, what you're going to invest in, that, um, man, if you're not confident about what you're doing, I think that you got to dig into that. Have I done enough homework? Have I really explored what all the downsides are? You know what always makes me more confident as an investor, Doug, is actually thinking about all the things that could go wrong. And and Susie kind of portrayed it as, you know, men are more than confident, I'll say, kind of cocky, right? But I think that for me, I get more confident and maybe even more cocky when I think about all the things that could go wrong when I make an investment decision and kind of eliminate all those in my mind. Think about all of the things that I'm going to do if it doesn't go my way. And you know what? At some point, every investment doesn't go my way, and I like having that ahead of time. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I find that when I try and separate myself from the emotions of the decision, when I speak to clients every day, they all have ideas and we're always talking about ideas and I never trade on it for myself and I try to discourage them from trading on it for themselves. And then when I look back, I'm always happy when I say, you know, it was a good thing I just stepped back and thought about it longer. And I don't know if this is overconfidence or fear, but I think it's just the wisdom of realizing that you don't have to make decisions quickly. And I, my guess is that a lot of times men feel more pressure to, to look smart and to make a decision fast. And, and it's just not going to be a good decision necessarily. I found that as a financial advisor, I mean, you know, uh, a lot of couples that I worked with the, the man in the relationship, I felt, I never felt like, um, they had to have this pressure, but I could feel a lot of men acting like they had the pressure that they had to be the one that knew about money and they had to be the person that was in charge and everything's going to be okay. And I'm going to take care of it. I did see that a fair amount. And sometimes that went too far, right? I mean, Susie, I I, I got the feeling Susie made it sound like that's too far all the time. <laughs> but I think that different people in every relationship have different roles. But um, but sometimes it, it did go too far. And there was some mansplaining going on, which drove me crazy. Well, a lot of times I think that, again, I'm, I'm generalizing, the women who come in with their husbands are often much, much more afraid of the market. And they'll say things like, you know, Doug, why don't you just buy me CDs? I don't want this stock exposure. And then you have women who I think are really experienced and understand it, like Linda. And I think if you were to, to talk to these women, what would you say to them? Well, I think a lot of women can naturally be risk averse. That's something I've seen over time in working with women and investing. And 
the main thing is for them to come to a center point and to agree in the middle because the men can be more comfortable taking risk. And we've also seen the women be risk averse, but I also have examples of them working together where it's actually helped them. For example, one couple I know, and this is a true story, the husband had a friend invite him into investing in a business and it was, uh, it had to do with bottling soft drinks in another country or something. And for some reason, he thought this was going to be a great idea and make a lot of money, whatever. And the wife cautioned him, well, it turned out it was a huge scam. And so their balancing of the two opinions together actually had them make the right decision not to invest in that particular thing. So I think, you know, husbands and wives just need to work together. And I think that will balance each other out. Man, I love that. I I just love the communication message there. I, I found as a financial planner that communication was always at the root of issues that couples had when they had issues. And it was always at the heart of the success of people when they managed money well together. Well, how would people communicate in order to change their desire and change their goal? One of the examples that Susie gave was how people often have to hit rock bottom financially in order to then say, oh my gosh, I better fix things up. But I often feel my job as an advisor is to stop people from doing that. But it's difficult. What would you say to someone, Joe, or when you were actually working as an advisor and you saw someone with destructive behavior and you say, listen, man, it's just going to get worse and worse. And then they're like, yeah, no, it'll be okay. And then you're thinking you're going to hit rock bottom and then you can't even be my client because you won't have money and hopefully you'll dig yourself out of it. What can people do so they don't actually have to hit rock bottom until they can turn things around and become financially secure? Well, the cool thing about financial planning, Doug, is that it's a roadmap, right? And, and the roadmap was always my favorite part of the plan. So if, if I can project out for them where they're headed, whether it's good or bad, the numbers speak for themselves. So if I can stay away from assessing blame and blaming people and making people feel guilty for what they've done, my job was always, listen, we are where we are, no matter how we got here, this is where we're headed. This is the trajectory. And if I can model that well enough and show that to them in a way that they they get it cerebrally and they don't spend a lot of time feeling embarrassed and instead spend time on this is where we're at and we have to do a course correction i think that's job 1 it's the same thing by the way as people going in for a raise like when you ask for a raise people that go into those situations emotionally do really poorly right hey doug uh, my kid needs new shoes i'd love you to pay me more i really think i deserve more cuz i i really like my job but if you go in there with data it's exactly the same. I think whenever you can use data versus emotion, it'll change somebody's mind much more quickly. Yeah, that's really nice. But we learn a lot about behavioral finance, which shows that people just don't follow the numbers. Linda, do you think people are able to be cerebral investors if Joe shows them a cool financial plan? <laughs> I do think so. I think that it comes down to good money habits and knowledge about what they're doing. And I don't really agree that it's low self-worth. If you have low self-worth, you can't have high net worth. I, I think it is possible. I think it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If people think they can't do it, then they can't. But if they think that they can, they'll find a way to do it. And they have to have, you know, we talked about confidence earlier. They have to have some confidence, but also good money habits and knowledge are going to go a long way to, you know, making the right decisions because ultimately I think having more money is about making the right decisions and not making poor choices, not making wrong choices and not making foolish choices. And so the less that you can make the mistakes and the more that you can make the right decisions, it's going to take you a lot farther. 
Yeah, I, I like that. You sound exactly like Tony Robbins, who talks a lot about the importance of making decisions and deciding what you want to do. I'm not going to agree, however, which is funny because I'm in the same business that uh, that you guys are in, the, the numbers business. I think it's just true, and there's enough evidence to show today that even when you show people the numbers, the whole field of behavioral finance is showing that they're going to make mistakes. But Linda, what you touched on, which which I totally agree with, is that if you want to stop from making these mistakes over and over and over again, which will destroy you, just make the decision to have good money habits. And that's why once you set up the good habits, whether it's saving or investing or budgeting, whichever habits you're going to pick up, I think that's the way you're going to ultimately be successful. Because unfortunately, I think humankind has proven that logic yeah, but- just doesn't always work. No, I totally agree with that. But you can't be afraid to make a change and, and to make a decision. And the adult brain, uh, I took some I took some fantastic classes about human development. And the adult brain needs to be told why. It needs to be, why are we making this change? And whether, Doug, people do things emotionally or not with that information is one thing. But you need to tell the adult brain, this is why we're doing it. And the why in data is an impetus that will get them to not be afraid of making a decision. Will they make the right decision? I don't know. But most of the time, people make no decision. And that's, as you know, much, much more rough than uh, making the wrong one. I like your point about how adults need to know why. Just the other day, I was uh, shopping and this little kid gets out of a car and he leaves the door open and he walks away. And his mother says, Johnny, go back and shut the door. And he goes, why do I always have to shut the door? So even little kids need to know why. It's <laughs> so funny. Like, he couldn't understand why I had to shut the door. In but the that's car. funny, though, because, because kids, the kid will whine that way, but the kid will go back and shut the door just because dad or mom told him to, right? If one adult yeah. says, no, 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 go back and, and, and shut the door, and you don't tell me why to shut the door, I'll just say, hey, Doug, screw you. You know, I don't want to shut the door. <laughs> Right. No, I think you do have to show people what, what the goal is of the money. You know, it sort of leads, leads us to the question of the purpose that people have for money. And I think one of the mistakes that a lot of people make is they never even think about why they want the money. Linda, you've been very successful in investing. Has it just been a game for you or did you have a specific purpose for why you wanted to get the money? No, I definitely had a specific purpose. When I first started out, I was wanting to have a family and I was the main breadwinner and traveling a lot. I thought, well, how am I going to do all this and have a family? And so I thought I would start investing because then we could maybe afford someone to help, you know, to hire some help. And so that was my initial, that was my initial strategy. So I had a big why in terms of, you know, getting started investing and things turned out very differently. So Unfortunately, I never did get that family, which which is okay, but um, that was my initial starting point was for that. How about you, Joe? What's your purpose been as far as accumulating wealth? You know, my purpose has changed, but the main purpose has been to be able to have the freedom to do whatever I want when I want it. So I initially set up a date, and my goal has always been to pull that date forward. So decision-making is always based on being able to have the flexibility to do what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And I would just say that with a lot of the clients that I work with, they often say their main motivation is financial freedom. And I think for a lot of people, that is really the goal is to not have to work for someone else to just have total freedom to do what you want. And we all want that we all aspire to that. And I think that's a huge motivator for a lot of people. I wonder if that's too broad a definition, because that to me sounds just like being rich. You know, I'm rich, so I don't have to do what anyone else says. That that sounds pretty good. It, does no, it need to be more specific? 
Well, it, it definitely does. But it, and, and the number is going to be different for different people, right? I mean, I, I listen to some people and their goal is to, if listen, if I can live in a tent in the woods and build my own furniture, I'm going to be the happiest person alive. Th- that's not me, right? That's no, not no, I mean, right? that's, <laughs> yeah. that, that's not the kind of thing that I'm after. I don't want it, but, but I have respect for those people, you know? I mean, people that we've talked to in the past that have, you know, live in these uh, 400 square foot houses, or smaller than that, uh, these these really tiny places, just so they can have financial security. So I, I think deciding what that number, I totally agree, deciding on what that number is for you is a big piece of the puzzle. I guess Joe prefers to go to Ikea and have someone deliver and build the furniture for him. I, I think my, my goal is, has been over the years, it's definitely changed, like you said, but it's, it's to be able to donate money because I've gotten involved, my wife and I have gotten involved in a, in a few very specific charities on a, what we like to think is a, is a pretty significant level. And we've been able to see that the, the benefit of earning the money has really been to turn around and to do good things with it. And I think that, I mean, I've mentioned that I think here before that when people are, are donors, they begin to see the money not as something, how much more can I have for myself? They see how much more powerful it is. And, you know, the, there's a lot of power that comes with money that can be used for good and for bad. And as they say, you know, as Spider-Man's uncle said, <clears throat> with great power comes great responsibility. That was Spider-Man's uncle. It was an Uncle Ben? I don't know, was it? I saw it in one of the movies. Oh, come on, Linda. You're so, you're, you're, your nerd cred is going through the floor. I didn't know that was Spider-Man's uncle. That's cool. Oh, man. We're so disappointed. Uh, no, I agree. Uh, I think it's important to be able to give back and you know be able to spend time on boards or you know give major yeah, contributions. Yeah. It's super important. Absolutely. Yeah. And time, by the way, is critical. It, not only is our time just about up, but the one I wanted to touch on what you said, Linda, is that a lot of people say, I don't have the money to give away. And I think that's totally fine. But if you don't have the money, you probably have the time to either sit on a board or work in an organization and just help out and volunteer. And all of that changes your view on money. And I will, I will tell you that in my financial planning business, the people who I see who seem to be the most successful are the people who are most generous with their time and money. All right, but I mentioned, and I do see we're, we're just wrapping it up on time, but in the last few seconds, Joe, tell us what's going on down in the basement. Man, at Stacking Benjamins, we're having a lot of fun. We have uh, a, a gentleman on, Al Zenick, who talks about if you master your cash flow, that's the key to everything. So he's, he's giving us ways to make sure that uh, we can keep cash flow positive and um, keep our fear of you know making the wrong decision at bay. And Linda, what's going on at Be Wealthy and Smart? Well, at Be Wealthy and Smart, we're talking about what is the next step to wealth. We have a listener question, and the person was saying what I think a lot of people are saying is, what do I do next, and how do I take my next steps to try and get some more net worth and wealth and financial freedom under their belt? So that's what we're talking about. What's going on over on your podcast, Doug? At richesaking.com at the podcast there, we're talking now about how a larger mortgage payment can actually help you save money in the long term. I think especially in today's interest rate environment, people are making huge mistakes with how they manage their mortgages. So check that out at richesaking.com. All right. Miranda Marquette isn't with us today, but we all think she's wonderful. And so check out her work at plantingmoneyseeds.com. And as we wrap it up today, Linda P. Jones, can you take us out? Uh, no. <laughs> it's so hard to do Miranda's job. I know. I might be able to do it. Thanks for listening to the show. Remember to uh, check out our show notes 
at moneytreepodcast.com. Also, if you could leave us a review, reviews are the way people find out about our show. So head to iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you listen and leave us a review. We would appreciate it very much. And thank you to everybody who's done that. And remember, no one cares about your money as much as you do. So invest in your life. Is that it? Is that the way she says it? That's the way she says it. Bam. Thank you for listening to the Money Tree Investing Podcast. Visit us at MoneyTreePodcast.com for more free investing resources. She says it a little more enthusiastic. Bam. But otherwise, it was great. Invest in your life. And then, like, Steve could make an echo at the end. Life, right, life, 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 life. <laughs> Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Well, stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is military appreciation month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This military appreciation month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans, and all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and best careers for military spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org celebrate, and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.